Father, I, I thank you for your word. And I thank you how we are told that every part of it points to your son. It teaches us things about him and the things that he's done. And it also uh, points us to you because we, are, we understand in Scripture that Jesus represents you, Father, that he is the manifestation of you on this earth, that he reveals your glory. And I, I pray for us as we dive into this passage this morning, Father, that we will see uh, your glory, uh, your goodness, your, your greatness, and that you will re- reveal that to us in a, in a new way. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, we are uh, diving into the 17th chapter of John today. And uh, I don't know if you've ever experienced something they call buyer's remorse. Uh, But you probably have. And buyer's remorse is that uh, thing that happens when you buy something and then you're instantly sorry that you bought that thing. And uh, maybe you've experienced that on something you bought on Amazon. or I actually experience it when I think of buyer's remorse. More than anything, I think of back when I was in college. And when I was in college, when I was a uh, sophomore, I got a, a Buick Regal. Um, probably doesn't sound like a big thing, but it was a pretty sweet ride. It had a, a great sound system in it. And I kind of, it was a big deal because I lived in Phoenix and I had been driving a pickup truck that had no air conditioning. So I'm living in Phoenix, no air conditioning. And then I got this Buick Regal that had air conditioning and it was great sound system and it was awesome. And I loved it. But it was during my junior year at Christmas time, somebody gave me um, a gift, some cash. And they said, I, I don't want you to use it for... Um, tuition or books or anything, go just blow it on something frivolous. And, and so I decided for some reason that I needed to get a sunroof on my Buick. I, I thought like that would be a really great thing to do. And so I went down and I had somebody install this, this sunroof. As soon as I got it, I realized what a huge mistake I had made. First of all, you know, I'm living in Phoenix and, and this is back in the 80s and so it wasn't like a sunroof on a car today where you have a shade, you can pull it closed. Had no shade. So, you know, it was just the sun beating down on me all the time, every time I was driving. And I remember thinking like, oh, why did I do this? I, it, it looked cool and I could open it sometimes, but it was just, sun was always blaring down in there. And so that's kind of the way it was when I lived in Phoenix. And then I moved to the Pacific Northwest. And I discovered something about my sunroof that I didn't know until I moved here. And that is when it rained, my sunroof leaked. And I, I, I just never experienced that in Phoenix. So now I'm here and it leaks. And it, it doesn't just leak. It really only leaks on the left side of the sunroof. And it doesn't leak unless I make a hard right turn. And when, when it would be raining and I'd turn right, the uh, water would drip down. And if I was leaning forward, it would hit me in the head. And I wanted to avoid that. So I, w- I just started to learn like when, when it's raining and I'm turning right, I have to lean back in my seat. And then, of course, it would drip down on my lap, which wasn't a good look, you know, when you got out of the car. And so I had this big towel, and I would put, I'd, I'd put a towel on my lap when I'd be driving around, and I'd have to lean back whenever I was turning right. And I actually had to do that for several years so that it was kind of a knee-jerk reaction whenever I was turning right, no matter what I was in, I'd lean back. And so then I got rid of the car, 
And uh, I think for a couple of years, it was just always this kind of muscle memory thing where even though I didn't have a sunroof, I still would lean back and always have a towel with me. And I was really sorry that I bought the thing from almost the day that I got it, buyer's remorse. And maybe you've experienced that, you know, something that you got and then the more you had it, um, the more disappointed you were with it. Like it might be a product that you purchased, like a sunroof or something on Amazon. Seemed really cool when you got it. It was just disappointing. Maybe it was a movie you watched. I've watched a lot of movies where, you know, about halfway through the movie, I'm just getting worse and worse and I'm disappointed I even started it. Maybe it's a vacation you went on and it didn't turn out to be what you thought it was going to be. Um, maybe it's a, a job. Maybe it's um, a, a person. Maybe you got in a relationship and you've just been more and more disappointed as time goes by. But today we're going to talk about God and how with God it's the opposite. With God, the more you get to know him, the more amazing you find him to be. It, it's not that he's actually more amazing or great or glorious. It's just you realize more and more how glorious and great he is. He's far uh, more glorious and beautiful and wonderful than you could possibly imagine with your mind. And the future that God has for you is more glorious than you could possibly even imagine. And this is one of the things that makes God different than anything else that we experience in this life. And today we're entering into John chapter 17. So for four chapters now, we've been in this thing we call the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. Uh, you might remember it started with Jesus washing the feet of the disciples and just humbling himself and all the things that it taught us. And not only did he wash the feet of the disciples, he washed the feet of Judas, which was kind of a mind-blowing thing. And then uh, he has the Last Supper with them. And then he talks about a betrayer and it's, it freaks them out. And there's a ton of teaching for chapters. You know, he says, love one another as I've loved you. He talks about his impending death, which freaks them out. He talks about Peter's denial, which freaks Peter out. He says that he will leave them. That kind of freaks him out, but he'll send the Holy Spirit. And in all this, the disciples are just kind of getting a little bit on edge there because of everything he's talking about. And now in John chapter 17, he switches from speaking to them to speaking to God. He, he goes into prayer, and he begins to talk to the Father. And as, as Gary read earlier, it begins in chapter 17, verse 1. This way it says, Now, when Jesus had spoken these words out to the disciples, then he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father. So now he's switching from talking to the disciples to talking to the Father. Now, this is often called the high priestly prayer of Christ in chapter 17. Uh, some people will call it the, the prayer of consecration. Some people call this the real Lord's Prayer. So, you know, we often think of the Lord's Prayer as being that thing that he taught the disciples, right? Our Father who art in heaven. But some people like to point out that's actually the disciples' prayer. And this is actually the Lord's Prayer. This is the prayer that Jesus prays. And it's, by the way, the longest recorded prayer of Jesus that we have. Now, we have a lot of his sermons and his, his parables and his teaching. But this is the only lengthy prayer that we have of Christ. Now, obviously, he prayed a lot. We know that. We know he went away to pray and to be alone. And, uh, and most of those prayers, of course, are not known to us. But here, Jesus prays out loud. And I think that in itself is significant. He, he didn't have to pray out loud, but he did pray out loud because he wanted the disciples to hear it. And he wanted it to be recorded so that years later, we could consider this thing that he prayed, which is what we'll do. 
Now, one thing to keep in mind is that this is a prayer, if you will. It's a conversation between two members of the Trinity, between the Father and the Son. So we get to listen in to this conversation, or at least one part of the conversation, between the Father and Son. So it makes it kind of unique. It's kind of like when I'm in my office here at the church, Sometimes I'm in my office and the door's closed and people are standing outside my door and they're talking and they're having what they think is a private conversation, but I can actually hear everything that's going on. I can listen in on it. It's kind of a warning to people standing outside my office door. But here, right, we get to, we get to sit in on a conversation that Jesus is having. Now, uh, J.C. Riley says this, and I'm going to actually quote J.C. Riley several times because what we're going to talk about today is so deep. It's really in some ways beyond me, and I think he has a good way of kind of launching us into this passage. This is what he says. There are sentences, words, and expressions in the 26 verses of this chapter which no one probably has ever unfolded completely. We have not the minds to do it or to understand the matters that it contains, even if we could. But there are great truths in this chapter which stand out clearly and plainly on its face. And to these truths, we would do well to direct our best attention, which is what we'll do. In fact, We're going to break down this chapter into three messages, and we're just going to look at the first five verses today, and even at that, just with five verses, we'll barely be able to scratch the surface of what we have here. So we're going to talk about glory, and if you have the notes open there, you'll notice the whole outline is all broken down into talking about glory, and the first thing is this. We want to talk about the priority of glory, of of what it is, and and why Jesus would would pray for it. So again, in verse 1, It says, now when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, he begins to pray, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So first of all, notice that the term hour comes up again. And this is a a term that's come up many times. Uh, Scholars will say that this is a, a technical term that John uses to refer generally to a period of time, not an actual hour, but Jesus kind of says that here's what I'm going to call an hour, which includes uh, his crucifixion, um, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his glorification. And he'll often talk about all these things together as if they're an hour that takes place. Um, and Jesus is saying the hour is here. The waiting is over. Let's go. And then he talks about glory. He says to glorify your son that your son may glorify you. So I want to take a minute to unwrap glory because I find a lot of times when people are talking about the glory of God and what does that mean, it feels like this visceral thing that we can't really figure out. And there's a certain aspect of that, that it's above and beyond what we can understand. But there's, there's some things we can grasp here. And I, I have all this stuff in your notes. So let's just start really generally, like in a generic sense, what is glory? So the Oxford Dictionary puts it this way. It is high renown or honor won by notable achievements, magnificence, or great beauty. And, and that's all very true. I don't know that it really helps us understand what glory is. Uh, In the software that I use for research in Lagos, it puts it this way. It's the power, might, or splendor of an individual. So that's absolutely true. It's it's the greatness of someone. So when we talk about the glory of God, we're we're talking about his character, his his nature, if that helps. Um, The Hebrew word kavod means this. Primarily it means weight or something that is substantial. I actually really love that idea. Glory is the weightiness of God, the weight of glory. Um, The term connotes honor and fame, 
That's coming from status. It includes greatness, wealth, or power, or the acknowledgement of others. One of the things you'll notice is as you go through all these, there's some common things, and that is that glory refers to the greatness of something or the honor of something, or in the Hebrew, the weight of something. Uh, the Greek word doxa is very similar. It means a very apparent dignity. So here we have this listing in dignity, honor, reputation, splendor, majesty, worth, etc. As used of God, it's deemed particularly appropriate for describing his moral, his moral uniqueness or his grandeur as Lord, in particular, of the universe. Edward Clink, in his commentary, I love how he puts it. He says, glory is the manifestation um, of God's being. That is, it's the part of God that we can experience. That's what manifestation means. It's the part that we can see of his being, of his nature, of his presence in a manner that is accessible to human experience. So glory in the Bible has kind of two aspects of it. There's, there's God and who he is. And then there's the part of it that we see. So we often talk about God, the manifestation of God's glory. That's the part of God's glory that we can see. So let me illustrate this for you if I can, if this helps. So my wife and I back in November went to Europe. And when you travel through Europe, through Switzerland and Germany and France and Luxembourg, you see a lot of cathedrals. And I was thinking about how that kind of paints a picture of glory for me. So when, when we were there, we'd have a lot of this. this. This is actually in Switzerland, I think. And, and we're walking through uh, town. And in the distance there, you can see, is a cathedral. So from a distance, there's no high rises there. Um, so it stands above everything else. So you see it from a distance and you think, wow, that, that's pretty big. That's, that's pretty cool. And then we walk through town and about a block away, we come around a corner and we can see it. And now it looks a lot bigger. It, it's, we're, we're beginning to understand what it is. It's glory, if you will, is growing. And then, you know, you get right by it. And here's what you start to notice. And I know you can't see it in the picture, but you start to notice that the building that you saw from a distance that looked cool, as you get closer, you notice it's even bigger and it's even more grand. You begin to notice things all over the building that you didn't see from a distance. And then you get really close. So like here, we're standing right in front of this thing and you start to notice that every square foot of the exterior of this building is decorated, is, is ornate. It has... Uh, sculptures and it has um, people on it and it has um, you know arches and, and all this stuff and you start to look here's the thing I think about when I look at this you're standing in front of this and this is a building that took over 400 years to build right maybe you had a craftsman who was 20 years old and he started working on the exterior when they started building the building and um, his children and grandchildren and great 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 grandchildren could have worked on this building and still not seen the completion of it because it took that long to build on the outside as you get even closer you see statues of angels and saints and then you go inside and when you get inside it's even more spectacular to think how did they build a structure with ceilings that high two three four hundred 
years ago. And you begin to notice the architecture inside. You, you see stained glass windows from a, from a distance. And you see altars. And again, you see sculptures and all of this work that artisans have done over hundreds of years. And the stained glass windows. You know, I, when I, we went in, I, I remember the first stained glass window I saw, I took like 10 pictures of it. And then I saw another and another. And after, after seeing about 100 stained glass windows, you're like, yeah, that's pretty cool. But you can kind of lose the idea. This is one of the cathedrals we were in. This is way up, that you can hardly tell how high it is. And the paintings on the wall and the intricacy of the stained glass window. It's, it's pretty amazing. As you get closer to the building, you discover more and more of its detail and you appreciate it more and more. You see what we might call its glory, right? That, that is its beauty. Now here's the point I want to make. As you get closer to the building and it seems more glorious, it doesn't get more glorious. You only perceive more of its glory. And that's how it is with God. The more we see of him, the closer we get to him, the more glorious he appears to us. But he doesn't actually get more glorious. He always was that glorious. We're just seeing it more and more and more. In Psalm 19, the psalmist says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In Colossians, we read that Jesus was the one who created the universe. And the universe that is so vast that we cannot see it all, we cannot comprehend it in its vastness. Um, atheists will ask sometimes, why would God create a universe so big that we can't see it all? Like that feels like a waste. And the answer, of course, is that it's because it reflects his glory. It reflects his infinite power. And he has created a universe that reflects that. It's bigger and more grand. And of course, as we send telescopes out and see more and more of it, right, we're just discovering more and more about the glory of God. But it was always there. Now in scripture, some people have experienced partial revelations of God's glory. Think Moses on Mount Sinai. Think Peter and James and John at the Transfiguration. But the most complete manifestation of God's glory, we're told, is in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus manifests God to us in a more complete way. So Jesus prays, Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And one of the things that we'll note as we go through the entire chapter of John 17 is an interconnectedness between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Here it says that the Father glorifies the Son, and then the Son glorifies the Father. Both of them glorify each other. And it's, it's not just that they glorify each other, they share in the glory, because within the Trinity they are one. Again, these are hard things for us to understand, but we can see examples of it in Scripture. We're told that at the birth of Jesus, God was glorified. As Jesus taught, the Father was glorified. When Jesus worked miracles, the Father was glorified. In his death and resurrection, he was glorified. But we know that the, the Father brought glory to Jesus at his baptism, at the transfiguration, uh, shortly after the triumphal entry. And so they, they glorify each other. Jesus here is talking specifically, though, about a glory that comes from the resurrection, which is, is part of it. That's definitely part of his glory. Um, it also includes the glory of the ascension which is also another part of it, but there's also a glory that comes from the cross, from the horrific 
death of Christ on the cross, there is a glory that is given to God and, and to Jesus. I'm going to quote J.C. Riley again here. He gives a paraphrase of the first verse of chapter 17, and I think he puts it well. He says that Jesus is praying this way. Give glory to thy son by carrying him through the cross and the grave to a triumphal completion of the work that he came to do and by placing him at thy right hand and highly exalting him. Do this that he may bring fresh glory to thy holiness. I, I love that phrase that he uses, fresh glory. It's not, it's not new. It's always been there. But Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection brings a freshness, if you will, to the glory or the greatness of God as far as we can see. To thy holiness, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And prove to the world that thou art a just God, a holy God, and a merciful God. My death and resurrection will prove this and bring glory to thee. And, and ironically, it was through the horrific crucifixion of Christ that God's astounding glory was displayed like nowhere else in human history. Because what seemed like the worst possible outcome for Jesus, at least in the minds of his disciples at that time, was in reality his ultimate victory and a display of the glory of God. Thomas Schreiner puts it this way. He says, What God has accomplished in Jesus Christ displays both the justice and the love of God because God's holiness is vindicated in the cross while at the same time his love is displayed in the willing and glad sacrifice of his son. The glory of God displayed. That's our second point here. The glory displayed. And Jesus talks about this in verse 2 and in verse 3. He prays this, since you have given him, that is Christ, authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. This is what it is. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The word flesh here in the ESV is translated as, as people. It's the Greek word sarkos in the NIV or mankind in the New American Standard Version. And he says this, he says, Give eternal life. This is the mission of Christ. To seek and to save the lost. And to display the glory of God in all of this. Jesus, notice, describes here salvation as an act of God. He says that it is God who gives believers to Christ. And it is Jesus who does the work for their salvation. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit who indwells them and seals them so that they can know God and know Jesus. It is a work of God from beginning to end. Now, what is eternal life? Well, it's a lot of things, but here Jesus mentions three things in particular. He says eternal life, first of all, involves knowing something, right? It know, it's, it's some information. It's, it's, it's knowing truth um, about the only true God is what he says here. So it involves truth, not merely knowing about the existence of a God, maybe a God of your imagination or making, but God is revealed in Jesus Christ. And our source for knowing that today is through the Bible. The Bible is a record of God's self-revelation to us and the life of Jesus Christ. So it's, it's knowing something, it's knowing truth. But it's not just knowing something um, that is truth. Second thing is it involves a relationship with that truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. It involves a relationship with Christ. So it isn't merely possessing information, though that's part of it. 
about God, but it's knowing God intimately. That is having a relationship with him. It's to believe in him. And, and in John, he puts it a lot of ways. How do you know you have a relationship with Christ? Well, it's trusting him. It's loving him. Uh, John describes it as abiding in Christ, as having a relationship with him. So it involves knowing something, and it involves a relationship with Jesus. And third, it involves a, a growing relationship. Scholars like to point out that in verse three, the word know there is in the present tense. Eternal life is not just a quantity of life, right, that, that is eternal life, but a quality of life. It is much more than living forever. It is enjoying int- intimate relationship with God now and forever that's growing. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, Notice what he says here, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, notice this, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul just beautifully wraps up everything that Jesus is praying here. Notice it says that God shines his light into our heart. He gives us knowledge. And what is that? It's of the glory of God. And and where do we find it? In the face of Jesus. And where do we find that today? In the word of God. We see Christ, his life, his face, if you will, in the word. And there we find the glory of God. Which takes us to our third thing about glory. And that is that Jesus prays for a return to glory. In verses 4 and 5. He says this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. So four, just four and five, two quick verses that are so jam-packed with information that we will really uh, begin to unpack this today and continue to do this in the weeks to come. But notice that Jesus describes himself as having finished the work that he was sent to do. This should stop, uh, cause you to stop for a minute and think, wait, where are we in the story? He hasn't been crucified yet. He hasn't risen from the dead yet, and yet he describes his work as being done. So there's a couple of ways that scholars understand this. Some, some people think that what Jesus is saying is that uh, his commitment to the work on the cross is so steadfast and sure that he can talk about it in the past tense as if it's already been done. And that's, that's probably part of what, what's happening here. But I think there's something else. Um, Jesus can talk about his work as being done. That is, he's done everything that, that he can actively do. And now, the Father has to carry on the work to completion. In other words, Jesus is going to submit himself to being falsely arrested and tortured and abused and crucified and, and dying on the cross. And the Father will, will bring him through that work and will raise him from the dead and ascend him to heaven and, and glorify him and his name above every other name. And so Jesus is really praying about the, the cross here. The cross, which we can think of as just this ultimate revelation or manifestation of the glory of God. Because at the cross, God is revealed like like nowhere else. The holiness of God, his hatred of sin is seen on the cross as nowhere else. His refusal to compromise is seen. His exercising his wrath upon Jesus, who bears our sin, shows us what a serious thing what a horrific thing sin is. And it shows us God's commitment to deal with that sin. Because we also see not only God's wrath against sin, but there we see God's love for us. The cost that he's willing to pay for our redemption so that we could become children of God. 
And I, I had a thought here that the deeper our contemplation of the horrific cross, the deeper will be our understanding of God. And the deeper our understanding of God, the more profound our understanding of his glory. Right? It's something that we ought to think about at times. One of the advantages I have of working here at the church is sometimes when I'm, I'm meditating on scripture, I'll, I'll come down here into the sanctuary and I'll just go over to the cross and I'll just like sit down in front of it and look at this ginormous thing that's in our sanctuary that represents God's commitment to us to deal with sin, to provide a way for us to be saved. But I also think about what it reveals about God. It reveals his, his glory. And so Jesus is, is praying here about the cross. And notice again the relational dynamics of the Trinity that we see in verses 4 and 5. It says the Father gave Jesus a work to do on this earth and that Jesus, who is co-equal with the Father, submits himself. This is in itself a, a crazy thought for us as human beings to be equal yet submit because we, we just don't do that. In, in human relationships, right? If we're equal, there's no submission. There is only positioning to be the person who's above someone else. But we're told here that Jesus and the Father are equal, and yet Jesus is submitting to him. Now again, this is a difficult thing to unpack. It, I, I could put it this way. Jesus can submit to the Father even though they're equal because they're also one. They're one in purpose, they're one in their love for us and for each other. They're one in their desire to, to provide salvation for the lost. And Jesus has now fulfilled his work and glorifies the Father through his, through his life on earth. But within the Trinity, it is unlike any relationship you have ever had or I have ever had. Because in our world, relationships are all about position and who has first place and who has second place and but here we see that Jesus, though equal, is submitting. It's a, it's a crazy thought, thought, but a great thing for us to, to give thought to. It's been said that uh, in, in this verse, Jesus says, glorify me. And that, that word is an imperative. It's a command. It's, a lot of commentators have tried to figure out how do you deal with Jesus commanding something of the Father. He commands that the Father would glorify him. But again, I would say this. The members of the Trinity are completely unified in their intent and in their goals. And so making commands of each other is not, not the same as when we make commands of one another on this earth. And notice also that Jesus doesn't ask for a new glory. He's simply asking for the glory that he had, he says, before the world existed. Because within the carnation, when Jesus came to this earth, we know that he, he emptied himself in some way. In Philippians 2, it tells us this. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And here it is, but he emptied himself. Uh, some translations say he made himself nothing. By taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. There's that idea again, obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. What does it mean that Jesus made himself nothing or emptied himself? Well, this has been highly debated by scholars through the years. One writer put it this way. He said what it means is this, that Jesus set aside the exercise of his glorious existence of deity to hum 
humbly live with those he created. I actually think that's a great way to put it. Notice he, he, cast, aside the, he cast aside the exercise of his glorious existence. In other words, he didn't live among us with a, a halo on his head or, or maybe some kind of otherworldly glorious form. He lived among us in a human body. He experienced life as we do. He faced temptation and hardships and hunger and thirst and fatigue, relationships and stress and rejection like we do, and yet without sin. One writer put it this way, it would be theologically inaccurate to think that Jesus' statement implies that the incarnation involved a lessened glory. Rather, Jesus is requesting what already belonged to him. Again, this is a very hard thing to understand. What does it mean that Jesus somehow... Um, had a lesser glory. What does that mean? And Ryrie paraphrases verse and four and f- verses four and five this way. He says, Jesus prays this way, Father, my earthly work being now finished, I ask to be restored to the heavenly glory I had with thee as one of the co-equal and undivided trinity long before this world existed. The period of my humiliation, I think this is what's key here, the period of my humiliation and my self-imposed weakness, and we could certainly see that in the life of Christ. In heaven, there is no perceived weakness, but he experiences life as we do, and so there's this self-imposed weakness being accomplished. He says, let me once more share thy glory and sit with thee on thy throne as I did before the Incarnation. The Bible teaches us that the ultimate purpose of God in all things is his own glory. And Jesus is the manifestation of God's being. We could say of his nature and presence. And he makes God's glory known to us in a manner that we can access. Right now, right now God sits in heaven in absolute glory, but we can't yet access that. But Jesus brought it down so that we can see that. Why did he do it? because it's what we needed. What we needed more than anything else as fallen sinners is to see the glory, the beauty, the perfection of God. We needed that more than we needed anything else. In Hebrews 1, it tells us this, the sun is the radiance of notice of what? Of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He revealed the glory of God to us because that's what we need to know. Kent Hughes in his commentary says this, today, from our standpoint, our Lord has a greater majesty as he reigns in his glorified human body at the right hand of God, beautified by his scars. Infinite glory cannot be increased, but this glory is greater and that there is now a greater understanding by both men and angels. And I think Hughes really nails it there, that through Christ and his work on the cross, we now can see God's glory in a greater way than we ever could before. And this brings us to the last point that we use to wrap this up, and that is the reflection of glory. And I'm going to cheat and go forward a little bit in John chapter 17 as I wrap this up. Some of you may be familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and it, it asks some questions. And the first question is this, what is the chief end of man. And some of you know this, you've memorized this, the answer is this. Man's chief end is to, notice, glorify God. His chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Jesus has returned to his glory in heaven. And now he is glorified, we're told, on earth 
through the lives of his followers. His glory is to be reflected in us, in our lives, in the way we talk, in the way we act, in the way we uh, make decisions, in the way we live. He is to be glorified today in us. You might remember the story of Moses when he returned from Mount Sinai. He, his face radiated the glory of God and he had to put a veil over it because it was so bright. And I love what Paul does. He kind of takes that idea and moves it forward today as believers. Notice what it says in 2 Corinthians 3. It says, and we, that is believers, who with unveiled faces, so our faces are unveiled, all reflect the Lord's, notice the Lord's glory. We reflect the Lord's glory. And being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing, there's a word again, glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And I want you to notice in particular two words, the word we and the word all. This is not Moses or Paul or the apostles. He's not just talking about church leaders or pastors or elders or the most spiritual people or the most mature in their faith. He's talking about all of us, every one of us who are believers. Every one of us are to reflect the glory of God in the world, in the dark world in which we live today. How does he do it? Notice that word transformed, or metamorphosis is the English word that we get from the Greek. There is a metamorphosis. There is a change taking place in us as believers. There is a gradual change as we continue growing and the likeness of Christ, and reflecting the glory of God. In Christ, you are not the same person you were before you were a believer. You're not even the same person you were last week or yesterday, because you are being transformed. And the more that we look to Christ, the more we follow Christ and abide in Him, the more we love Him and submit to Him, the more we are being changed day by day into His likeness. And the more that we are being changed into His likeness, the more that we are reflecting the glory of Christ in the world around us. We are reflecting him. In our marriage to our spouse, we are reflecting him. To the kids that live in our house, to our grown kids that don't live with us, we are reflecting him. To our neighbors and the way that we act and live and the decisions we make and how we treat them. We are reflecting him in the place we work and where we go to school. Whether we know it or not, whether we want to or not, whether we realize it or not, we are reflecting Christ. The question is, are we reflecting him rightly? Everywhere we go, with everyone with whom we interact. Looking ahead a little bit in John 17, in verse 22, he says this, the glory that you have given to me, I have given to them. Right? He's still praying here to the Father. And, it, and the them is, is us, believers that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. And here's the phrase here. So that the world may know. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Jesus made God's glory comprehensible to us. And he has placed his glory in us and he prays that the world will see that glory in you. And that glory in me. So that people around us will know that Jesus is God. Will know that God sent him. Will know that the words that he spoke are true. And will know that they can look to him. That he's the way, truth, and the life. And he is the way, 
to the Father. Here's my question for you. When people see you, what do they see? Do they see the glory of God reflected in you? Sometimes I think it's good for us to stop for a moment and to talk seriously about the serious work of glory. It is a serious work. And what can we do about that as we kind of think about how will we apply this to our lives as we wrap this up? Really, I, I just want to mention two things. We'll talk about a lot more in the weeks to come. But two things are obvious to me today. And I'm going to ask you, and this is in your notes, I want to ask you to make a decision, to write something down. And the first is this. I want to challenge you to dedicate, right, a blank amount of minutes each day to gaze at the glory of God. Right? How do we do that? Well, instead of Netflix or the internet or Facebook or YouTube, or, I want to challenge you to kind of exchange some of that time for the Bible. Because the scriptures are where we see, so to speak, the, the glory of God, the life of Jesus. That's where we get it. And so I don't, I don't know what you do in particular. Maybe right now you are not reading your Bible daily. And so maybe my challenge would be maybe just write down 10 minutes. I'm going to read the Bible for 10 minutes a day. And for you, that would be a huge deal, right? That would be 70 minutes in a week as opposed to nothing right now. Maybe the number should be 20 or a half an hour to gaze. So let me just give you a little perspective here. We have 15 weeks left in the Gospel of John. Then we're done. If you were to read a chapter of John a day, a chapter a day, that's not hard to do. It's not even going to take you 10 or 20 minutes. If you read a chapter a day, you would read the Gospel of John through five times between now and the time we finish this series. Let me tell you, if you did that, it would absolutely change the way that you will experience these sermons in the weeks to come. Even if you read just a chapter and a half a week instead of a chapter a day, you'll still get through the entire book of John before we finish. Read your Bible. Read it alone in the morning. Uh, read it with someone. Uh, listen to an audio podcast of it when you're driving to work, but just get the Word of God into your head. Get it into you because that's where you will ac accurately see what God is like. Get the Word into you. First one, I know we mention this all the time, um, but I want to encourage you. I I'm encouraging you to make a commitment. Uh, if you were in the room, if, if you're here today, I was going to ask you to write down that number. Right, so Scott's here. He can write. <laughs> to write down that number and to show it to somebody. Yeah, show it to the person next to you. Show it to your spouse. Show it to your parents. Make a commitment. I'm going to read for the next 15 weeks as we go through John. I'm going to read the Bible every day for this many minutes a day. Second thing. The second part, the second thing in the last one is obvious, and that is pray. I mean, it's kind of obvious, right? Jesus is praying for God's glory, and it would make sense that we would pray for the same thing as well, that we would pray that God's glory would be reflected in us. And I think, as I thought about it this week, what does it mean to pray that God's glory would be seen in you? Part of it probably absolutely means that God is going to reveal some things in your life that uh, obscure his glory. It, it may be that what God does in your life is, um, instead of trying to get more glory in you, is just try to unveil the glory that you are hiding through your sin. I say that because a lot of times when we pray this kind of prayer, like, God, may your glory be seen in me, what God tends to do is reveal our pride and our selfishness and our greed and our lust, right? You get the idea, and it, it means that we need to stand ready as God reveals it to repent because those things can, can keep people from seeing God's glory in us. 
So when we pray for God's glory to be reflected in us, what, what we're really praying a lot of times is, God, show me what's getting in the way of that glory. And here's something I've learned about this prayer. When you pray this, be ready, because God is going to answer that prayer. And I would encourage you to pray for Gateway as a church as well, that, that our world will see God's glory in us as, as a family when we meet together, um, the way we interact with the community, that they'll learn something of God and be drawn to him. And I, I say pray about this because we simply cannot do this on our own. We need God through the power of the Holy Spirit to do this work in us, so we pray. And I would encourage you to pray daily for this. You know, we, we, we talk a lot about oikos, right? You may be familiar, that's a Greek word and it means household. It literally means extended household. Back, back then, a household wasn't just the people that lived under your roof. It was the people with whom you had loving, influential relationships. And so, you know, it might involve the, the people that live under your roof. It might involve your parents who live down the street. Uh, maybe somebody you work with, somebody you go to school with. People that you have loving, influential relationships with. These are people that you are influencing in one way or another. Studies say that the average American has anywhere from 8 to 15, 16 people with which we have loving, influential relationships. And they come from all over you know, our, our world. They, maybe it's somebody you work with, uh, somebody who's a friend, somebody who's a neighbor, but it's this, it's this 8 to 15, 16 people that are looking at you. They're watching you. And here's what I know about these people. What they need from you more than anything is they need to see the glory of Christ reflected in you more than anything anything. And so would you pray? Would you pray for yourself? Would you pray that God's glory would be seen in you? Because here's the thing I know, you just never know. You never know wh who's watching you and who you could be reflecting God's glory to. I'll close with this. When we were uh, in Europe, we were uh, traveling down the Rhine River on a boat and and so we were on a boat with about 100 people, and you, you get to know some of those people, and they're from all over the U.S. and all over the world. And we, uh, one night, we were at a table with some of our best friends, and there was a couple other couples there, and, you know, we were talking, and I think I shared a, uh, a little while back how the, the rumor was flying around the boat that I was a pastor, and I don't know why everybody was super intrigued about that, and they're coming up, is it true that you're a pastor? And so I'm sitting at dinner one night with, and I'm not going to name him, but there was another guy, and we were kind of getting to know each other, and uh, we were just talking about, you know, where do you live and what do you do? And, and one night we're having this conversation, and he is not a believer. Um, and he said, you know, do you, do you travel anywhere? And I said, well, mostly I travel to Nicaragua. And that he's, he's traveled all over the world. And he's like, I've never been to Nicaragua. Why would you go to Nicaragua? And so I told him what we do. You know, we go down there and we build churches and we train leaders. And he just looked at me and didn't say anything for about 15 seconds. And then he said, man, your life has purpose, doesn't it? I wish I had that kind of purpose. And I realized at that moment, right, I, God, God in his glory need to be seen by this guy. And this is a great opportunity. Now, one of the really cool things is since then, we exchanged information, and, and even though he lives on the East Coast, we've been talking, and I've been sharing with him about the gospel and God gives us these opportunities. You never know. You could be in another country sitting at dinner with somebody you've never met before, and that might be an opportunity to reflect God's glory. But I know this for sure. The people in your home, the people in your school, the people in your neighborhood, the people where you, you work with, yeah, they're looking at you. They're watching you. Jesus prays 
May God's glory be seen in him and in us today. Well, thank you for uh, being with us. I don't know how long this took, but I think it was longer than usual because I could. I'm going to pray for us and I want to pray that you be safe out there and um, I want to pray for you that God's glory will be both revealed in you and, and through you. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for our time together here uh, for people wherever they may be watching this today. I thank you for this prayer. I thank you that it was recorded in scripture for us. I thank you for how it reminds us that there is just nothing more important in the world that we live in today than that your glory be seen. It is revealed through the word and it is certainly revealed through those of us who follow you. I I pray for us today that your glory would be seen in greater measures in the days and weeks to come. Father, reveal that in us that, that veils the glory, that gets in the way of the glory, that we can deal with those things, I pray, that we will be very much aware as we go out into the world that people are watching us and that they need to see your glory. We give ourselves to the word. We give ourselves to being led by your spirit and we ask for that now. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children say amen. Well, thank you for joining us and uh, hopefully next week we will all be together here in the building. God bless you.